Hello and welcome to the Monsieur So British podcast, written and read by me, Ian Moore. Stand-up comedian, author, jam maker, B&B owner. I live in France, work in the UK, and this podcast is about how the various plates I spin off and clash. One week is about life in France, or the zoo we've managed to grow, or about coping with chronic illness. Mostly, it should be used as a template, I think, of how not to make your life more difficult than it need be. This one is about travel. See, as a comedian, this is a very busy time of the year, and most of it is spent on the road, away from home, and what a joy that is. So here we go, Monsieur So British, episode 10, It's the Hope That Kills You. I stood by the kitchen island and smiled warmly at the businessman as he came downstairs for his breakfast. The place was laid out just as I like it. On the island was a selection of exotic juices and yoghurts, homemade jams, a jug of milk, fresh baguettes and still warm viennoiserie, croissant, pain au chocolat, pain au raisin and so on. The coffee filled the place with a warm, comforting aroma and the breakfast fruit salad glinted like jewels in the early morning light. The table was laid for one and the businessman seemed impressed at the trouble I'd gone to, even though he was the only guest in our B&B. Bonjour, he smiled and shook my hand awkwardly. Some people insist on these formalities of breakfast. And then he pointed at my hair. Is it raining outside, he asked. My wet hair was the only clue left in the place that gave any hint at all to the total and utter flapping mayhem that had dominated the preceding 15 minutes. I'd been slightly ahead of schedule, I usually am, and was floating confidently around the kitchen with something of a rare jaunty air, when suddenly, like a test car on a skid pan, I hit a patch of water, flipped 180 degrees and finished lying face down on the stone floor tiles. This was not part of the breakfast plan. It wasn't difficult to trace the source of the water, though, as it was still pouring through a ceiling beam and hitting my face. For a second I lay there and responded in typical Moore fashion by swearing at the gods and all their pernicious ways. Then I sprang into action. The businessman was taking a shower in his room directly above the kitchen salon. The fact that he was taking a shower drew more colourful language and a fish shake of the heavens. It's a bath, mate, not a bloody shower. Take a bloody bath. I grabbed some towels from my linen wardrobe and threw them on the wet floor. Then I stuffed a couple more towels in the gap between the beam and the ceiling. The shower stopped upstairs, which meant the flow of water downstairs would end soon. But then I noticed that a river had built up on a groove in the beam, run along the beam, and was now dripping onto my island, narrowly missing the baguettes. Nobody wants soggy baguettes for breakfast. But dripping so neatly into the toaster, it looked almost like an indoor water feature. I gave off a kind of basil faulty whimper and stood blinking at the bread-grilling time bomb in front of me. The toaster was the companion piece to the kettle, high-class DeLonghi kitchenware, but until now unused. I mean, we serve fresh baguettes. I'm at the boulangerie at the crack of dawn. Only an animal would toast fresh baguettes. I removed the toaster from view, mopped the island, cleaned the floor, titivated my breakfast display, and then heard the door open upstairs and so quickly shoved all my wet towels into the oven slammed the oven door shut, placed my hands nonchalantly on the island and smiled warmly at the businessman as he came downstairs for his breakfast. This is where we came in and only my wet hair gave me away. I regard it as one of my main achievements as a B&B host, small-time hotelier, call it what you will, that for the most part I managed to suppress my natural inclination to spiky crankiness. It's part of the job, and though I fall off the wagon occasionally, I keep a pretty firm lid on things, bite my tongue and lie back and think of England, as it were. 
However, if I worked as a flight attendant for a budget airline, for example, I'd have left the water flowing into the kitchen, shouted at the businessman that it was his fault, told him to shove his knob in the toaster, and then turn the heat up. I was on a plane, and the heavily made-up flight attendant, they used to be called stewardesses, but that would imply a level of service that doesn't exist in budget airline travel, whereas flight attendant has the necessary whiff of low-level Gestapo, was literally going through the motions of the safety demonstration. She flounced robotically without smiling, and despite so many layers of makeup, the base layer was probably turning into coal, she wore an expression that could be roughly translated as don't come running to me if we drop 30,000 feet into a hillside, you ungrateful bastards. She was also, absurdly, a breath of fresh air after the acrimonious herding and cattle prodding of Charles de Gaulle Airport. That there is no longer any glamour in air travel is a given, but what the aeroport Charles de Gaulle has done is taken that drop in standards, run with it, and come up with a range of anti-traveller systems so punitive that live animal exports look like a cruise on the QE2 by comparison. Just tasering all prospective flyers and subjecting us to unconscious invasive body searches would be a welcome step up in comfort. In order to comply with my renewed instructions to relax more, I'd stayed at a hotel on the airport the night before so that I might just gently stroll through passport and baggage security rather than get up at 4am and battle the Paris rush hour. I hadn't banked on the airport trying out the latest in self-inflicted airport anarchy. The queues were enormous, and even though I had, in theory, plenty of time, my hard-won French nationality means that I take the idea of airport queuing as something of a challenge now, so I pushed in. It was like elbowing your way to the front line of a battle. It was utter carnage. Fights were breaking out, arguments loudly conducted like it was pub closing time. There is simply no way you can go through this and in any way conform to doctor's orders and relax. I swear I saw the Dalai Lama in another security queue tell a uniformed guard to remove his own belt and shove it up his hole. Put that bag in another tray, snapped the security man. I was already semi-naked by now, my neatly packed suitcase and small hand luggage all but emptied. I've already got four trays on the go, I pointed out, which was an affront to his petty commandant authority, so he picked my bag up, strewing things on the floor. It wasn't a deliberate act, but he wasn't going to apologise for it either. Well played, I said. Is it your first day? It was a rookie error, in the same way that you never upset a waiter in a restaurant for fear of unhygienic food-related retribution, you don't piss off stressed-out airport security with their ill-fitting uniforms and Napoleon complexes. Each of my trays was therefore randomly chosen for further inspection, despite the entire aircrew of a Delta Airlines flight having treated their hand luggage like it was supermarket sweep and were carrying whole crates of muscadet, clearly having nipped over to Paris just to stock up for Thanksgiving. What's my point in all this? Well, obviously, the conclusion is that I'm making excuses for not relaxing, holding a mirror up to my world and saying to you, look, this is my life. How do you possibly expect me to glide zen-like through this pandemonium, even if it is on doctor's orders? Well, you'd be wrong. I think I've reached the point where my existence is so laughably chaotic at times, so grindingly, unerringly governed by spiteful travel regulations and timetables, or reacting to comic slapstick near disasters while being in constant vindictive pain, that I've indeed found a sort of calm. I've been at the eye of the storm, and now, Matrix-like, I have it under control, or at least see it for what it is. But that self-imposed serenity can't last forever, and within a week was being sorely tested. Thank you.
I was sitting in an eerily quiet Gare Montparnasse. It was one o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. My train for Tours was due to leave at 14.01, but the traditional pre-Christmas national strikes had bled into Saturday, so there was time yet for it to be cancelled. It's happened to me before. I'd just walked from the Gare du Nord, just under five kilometres, because the metro was shut. I'd passed about a dozen vans of CRS, that's the riot police, getting their pads on, as it were, on the Rue de Rennes, while around the corner union banners were being unfurled. That there would be clashes seemed inevitable. Because of my condition, I was in agony. I'd carried my case and my bag all the way, worn shoes, wholly inappropriate for a rheumatoid arthritis sufferer to go yomping across a city, and I felt about a hundred years old. I've been in this state before, obviously, so often it's boring. And normally by this point I'd be in despair, on the edge and close to tears. Not this time, though. I'd left London St Pancras at 7am, where I'd seen the future, and it kept me buoyed since. After a tough week, I needed that glimpse of optimism, because there had been some dark moments too. It must have been such a good idea on paper to introduce pianos into public spaces, a civilising attempt at appealing to mankind's cultural and creative side in airports and train stations, where tiredness and frustration are usually the dominant forces, a bit of gentle music to soothe the savage breast. I was back in Aeroport Charles de Gaulle and had been for an hour and a half. I was leaving home a day early to beat the national strike and was heading, eventually that evening, to Sheffield. My mood was tetchy, to say the least. So the toddler, who was being encouraged by his obese parents, both wearing Mickey Mouse ears, to jump up and down on the piano keyboard and had been for the last half hour, was coming very close to a very ugly, very gratifying demise. The journey didn't really pick up from there. I was due to change train at Doncaster and connect to Sheffield, but the train was cancelled and so an hour's wait, now 14 hours into the journey, on a cold, dark Doncaster platform, was a blow. Losing my tickets and being unable to produce them for inspection when a train did eventually turn up was another. How do I know you're coming from a connecting train from London? The truculent guard asked, prompting a young woman sitting opposite me to intervene. I can vouch for him, she said to the guard. I saw him in London. He's very distinctive. Never mind pianos. If anything is going to soothe the savage breast of this vain traveller, it's a compliment, which I accepted graciously, though it should never really have been open to question. No offence to Doncaster and all that, but it hasn't seen mustard tweed check frock coats with matching waistcoat in some considerable time. It was obvious that I must have come from somewhere else. I peacocked a bit and looked at the guard challengingly. I was, admittedly, a few M&S cans of Pink Fizz Pinot Grigio to the good by this time, and felt I had the upper hand. "'It's very careless to lose tickets,' the guard said suddenly. "'My friend,' I said haughtily, and giving it the full Lady Bracknell, "'you carelessly lost a train earlier.' My peacock strut was short-lived. The journey door-to-door had taken sixteen hours, and by the next day I could barely walk, though walking was the least of my worries.' I looked at the stage that was still being set up for that night's gig and gulped. No problem, I'd said when asked if I could get on the stage and do a sound check. But there was a problem. There was a very big problem. And the problem was that the steps hadn't yet been attached to the stage and the stage was stomach high. No problem, I repeated nervously. I walked around to the side hoping that one of the huge speakers would hide me from the queue for the stunt I was about to attempt I leant forward so that my chest was flat against the stage floor and rolled graciously so that my legs could get some traction. 
The plan was then to rest for a few seconds, allow the pain to subside a little and pull myself up, emerging from behind the speaker with people none the wiser. I started to pull myself up as planned, and then noticed two techies staring at me, each with a sandwich halfway to their wide open mouths, and a woman hoovering the stage who looked singularly unimpressed as if I was deliberately trying to refluff her black carpet. If only that had been the low point of the day. My other clever plan to avoid the strikes in and around Paris was to get the train from Sheffield back down to London and fly to Tour from Stansted on the Friday, thus avoiding Paris entirely. My car would be waiting for me there, and I imagined myself strolling out, putting my sunglasses on, and coolly walking to my car parked literally right in front of the terminal. I hadn't banked on Madame Karma, though, taking time out of her busy schedule to concentrate solely on making my life a misery. Striking in France is part of the country's DNA, and they've been going on so long that even the French, though massively inconvenienced by their own foot-stamping union-organised social tantrums, just shrug their shoulders now and go, Ah, we're French. It's what we do. A minority goad the majority into inaction. What do you think? Natalie asked. Should I join the strike on Thursday? It'll give me a chance to mow the lawn. The thing is, many of Natalie's colleagues would be on strike, so she would be one of only a few teachers in school, effectively babysitting a gaggle of pupils who'd bother to show up. Yeah, why not? I said, notifying Madame Karma immediately of the confidence I had in my own plans. My flight home on Friday was cancelled then. Somebody at Tour Airport from a workforce of about six people, presumably deciding that they too needed to mow their lawn. I couldn't pretend it didn't crush me. I stared stunned at the Ryanair text, followed swiftly by the confirmation email. I felt like I'd had my insides kicked out. I've had strike cancellations before, many of them, but I've always had a swift backup plan, a foresight that means I've never been more than a few hours inconvenienced even proud of the way I could deal with whatever strike disruption would come my way. This was the first time in 15 years that I'd been beaten. And along with the illness, the chronic fatigue and the necessary winding down of the amount of travel I can actually do, it felt like a massive defeat. I felt like a deposed silverback, and now it was time to limp off into the distance. I moped around London on the Friday night, making and then breaking promises to meet friends. The pain was intense, the new medication not up to the job, so I fell back on old, equally unhelpful medication, a bottle of Van Gris, and sulked in my hotel room, wondering what horrors would await me on Saturday's journey. I knew it would be a battle, and I wasn't sure if I was physically or mentally up for it. I expected more cancellations, a lot of painful walking, confrontations with rioters, petrol shortages, should I even make it back to my car. I was prepared for the worst, and sat stony-faced in St Pancras, a thousand-yard stare for anyone who made the mistake of trying to engage me. Then I noticed the boy, a smartly-dressed boy, about twelve years old, was walking towards the public piano, and my heart sank. I looked at the boy, then at the piano. My lip curled. I honestly thought this would be the moment, the moment I finally snapped, finally broke down. The boy sat on the stool, and stared at the keys, probably looking for a, a PS4-style hand controller, I thought, cynically. Don't do it, son, I said quietly. Please, don't do it. He did it. And for the next few minutes, he played the most hauntingly beautiful, light-as-a-feather version of Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World. It was stunning. 
and everyone around him applauded, surprising him out of his bubble and making him blush, hopefully with pride. I turned away and tried to hide my tears. The world is in such a hole right now, and it looks like it will get worse before it gets better again. My pain is constant, my mood low, even on a good day, and it's easy, therefore, to see everything, the world and all its people, with a jaundiced eye, a defeatist, what do you expect, sneer. But that boy proved me wrong. I got home eventually, on the Saturday evening, slightly broken, to be honest, definitely worn out and frayed. But that boy on the piano helped enormously, and I'll never forget it. There really is hope, and I didn't think I'd ever be the one saying that. I distinctly remember the conversation. It was November 2004, we'd moved out of our house in Crawley and were waiting to make the move to France in January. Money was tight, Christmas was coming up and we'd lost a fortune as the pound had dipped immediately after agreeing to buy the house in France. We were down thousands and thousands of pounds, so it was no time to be making off-the-cuff purchases. How much did that cost? Natalie asked dubiously, pointing at my new acquisition, a sleek, small-looking black suitcase. £95, I told her, and received the predictable and justified dressing down, which I couldn't really complain about, as it actually cost £170. That was 15 years ago. That case has been all over the world with me since, in war zones, jungles and cities, through five-star hotel concierge care and budget airline brutality, not to mention thousands of journeys on planes, trains, automobiles and boats in my weekly cross-channel commute. We both started fresh and young, we're both now battered, bruised, and not as capable of regular travel as we once were, but unlike me, it is still a veritable thing of beauty. You're probably thinking at this point, blimey, he's banging on about a bloody suitcase now, he's either overtired or seriously short of material, but bear with me, this, this is no ordinary suitcase. This is a Samsonite TARDIS. They don't call it that, obviously, but they should. It has an expandable main body, two front pockets, a large back pocket, and an inbuilt trifold suit carrier that is more discreet than a monarch's concubine. It's made of soft side polyester, which doesn't sound sexy, but hasn't torn in 15 years of heavy use. Almost as importantly, it's never fallen foul of fluctuating Ryanair hand luggage rules, because though it looks like hand luggage, it's actually bigger than a lot of hand luggage allowances. It's perfect. So perfect, in fact, that Samsonite don't make that model anymore. Like a football club that retires the shirt number of a legendary player, they've quietly moved on and the replacements are inadequate. Why they can't just keep remaking the same thing is beyond me. Unless, of course, it was a commercial decision. A cold, capitalist argument that goes something like this. Bob, that's Samsonite TARDIS. Bloody good case, that, Trevor. Bloody good case. Yes. Yes. Too good. Nobody needs to buy a replacement. Gotcha, Trevor. Reduce quality, double the sales. Get rid of it, Bob. And so the world goes. Apple did the same with the iPod Classic. As far as I'm concerned, mankind could have reasonably stood still after coming up with the iPod Classic, or at least taken a few years off to bask in its technological majesty. But oh no, instead they decided to drive users into a phone-based music player that needlessly requires upgrading every couple of years, retire the classic and send the world reeling back to the dark ages. Black-hearted, money-grabbing commercialism dressed up as progress and making us all poorer in so many ways. 
I've started buying up any old iPod classics I can find so that when the world does finally melt into a ball of molten lava from too much air travel, meat-eating and ignorance, I'll be there post-Armageddon, nodding away to something from a specially created playlist while everyone else goes in search of a signal. I won't try and buy up old Samsonite TARDIS cases, though. When this one goes, I go with it, I reckon. There's an argument to suggest that my stubborn refusal to give up on this old-fashioned, over-the-shoulder case, more often than not weighing upwards of 15 kilos, may have played a part in my physical decay. I should have changed to a wheel-based luggage system years ago, prolonging perhaps my ability to get about. Well, to that, I say, pa, a pox on it. I've written often about how I manage to keep going on my travels, that I envelop myself in the delusion that I'm some master of espionage gadding about from city to city, carrying out dangerous, worthy missions. You can't do that with a wheelie case, you just can't. James Bond doesn't arrive in Nassau with a wheelie suitcase. Yes, they're more convenient. Yes, they're probably better for your back and your posture. But to paraphrase Ray Liotta in Goodfellas, I don't want to be an ordinary schnook. I'd never have managed to sneak more stuff onto countless budget flights with a wheelie case, duping Stasi trained ground staff into thinking I was playing by their rules. One trick I always used when Ryanair and EasyJet went through their one bag and one bag only rule was to put a small bag on my shoulder first, then throw my Samsonite over my shoulder to hide it. It never failed. I always made it through. I was sticking it to the man, one cabin-sized luggage item at a time, and it felt good. It could even be regarded as unwieldy in an overcrowded world. A few weeks ago on the Paris metro, I slung the thing over my shoulder, paying, it has to be said, little attention to what was behind me, and sent a box of mini cakes flying across the carriage. The owner of said cakes was not impressed. A small bulldog of a man, he looked up at me and hissed, Morte. That's Sicilian for death. It was an uncomfortable ride for the next few stops until he got off by trying to push past me. But my case was now between us and he could do nothing about it. It was my shield and he departed muttering threatening imprecations. So we'll fade gently out together, my friend. Your zips are weaker than they were, your reinforced corners bent. You've kept my suits and my smalls pristine and for that I thank you. But we could both do with a little rest, I think. We've earned it. This is the last podcast for this year. Thank you so much for all your comments and shares and, and feedback. It really is appreciated. If you're stuck for late Christmas presents, please check out my books, fourth one out next year sometime, my audio books and so on. Come and see me at a gig or even come for a visit to the B&B. All links are on my website, ianmore.info. Have a safe, merry Christmas and take care. <laughs>